Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. For all those board-eligible listeners out there, the next general surgery oral board exam is coming up, and it's coming up quick in November. Now is the time to develop your study strategy. Let Behind the Knife help you out with our oral board audio review. Our review contains 92 scenarios covering 115 score core topics. The entire project contains more than 25 hours of content. Now, each scenario includes two parts. The first part is a perfectly executed oral board scenario that mimics the real thing. Scenarios are five to seven minutes long and include a variety of tactics and styles. Now, if you are able to achieve this level of performance in your preparation, you are sure to pass the oral boards with flying colors. The second part includes high-yield commentary that's added to each scenario. And this commentary includes tips and tricks to help you dominate the most challenging scenarios in addition to practical, easy-to-understand teaching that covers the most confusing topics we face as general surgeons. We're proud to say we have received rave reviews and are happy to offer the audio review at a fraction of the price when you compare to Osler or Pass Machine. In fact, we designed the oral board review to replace these courses. Learn more by visiting BehindTheKnife.org and clicking on the Premium tab. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Shanaz Hussain. And today we're talking about pilonalysis. I know it's a decidedly unsexy topic, but it's also a super important one that has an outsized impact on our patients. Today, we are going to cover what you need to know when taking care of patients with pilonidal disease, including presentation, workup, treatment, and managing complications. I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Dordoff and Dr. Scott Steele, both of whom treat pilonidal diseases regularly. Dr. Steele is also the senior author of the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Management of Pilonidal Disease. Patrick, why don't you get us started with a quick overview? Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Shanaz. So this is an important conversation, but it is we are, we are focused on the lowly pilonidal cyst, and it is most decidedly unsexy, but super, super important. This is one of those things that in general surgery is is kind of sneaky in terms of its impact on our patients. And pilonidals needs to be quite miserable. And while treating a pilonidal cyst may seem simple, it really is quite uh, nuanced. And I put pilonidal disease in a bucket with other sneaky, complicated general surgery problems like the difficult gallbladder or the complicated inguinal hernia. And sure, these are definitely common problems, but that doesn't mean they're easy to deal with. And there are two things that I'm particularly excited to cover today. And that's the myriad of different treatments from excision with or without packing or flap creation to phenol to laser therapy to fibrin glue. The list goes on and on. And really, really, really important is how we counsel our patients on this problem, which I, again, I think is is paramount when it comes to treatment. So, Scott, do you have any thoughts on the the humble pyelonalysis? I know you do. Yeah, I'm going to agree and disagree with both of you just a little bit. First of all, who's saying this is an unsexy topic? This is something that is particularly important. The other thing I will agree upon, though, is that it is hard to treat. And even when you have great surgeries that go well, you can still have an undoubtedly catastrophic failure. I think that's something that most people don't understand is it affects over 70,000 patients each year in the United States alone. And it's a, as we're going to get into a difficult area in the body, one that makes it very difficult to kind of put at rest. Oftentimes the blood supply is very difficult. 
And anytime you see a particular disease process with myriad of different types of operations, I can tell you that probably none of them work fantastic well. And we're going to go in that a little bit today. There's a lot of lumps and bumps that people come to us with. How do you distinguish palinol cysts from the rest of them? Yeah, so palinol disease is typically found in the sacrococcygeal region, specifically the natal cleft, which is the superiormost aspect of the gluteal cleft, aka your butt crack. And so the specific mechanism for the development of pyelonolysis is actually unclear, although the presence of hair and inflammation in the natal cleft definitely has something to do with it. So every time you sit or bend, it stretches that skin over the coccyx, and this can damage hair follicles, and this can lead to, to pit development and to pore development. And once pit or pore forms, this can draw in debris like hair. And you know, there's a thought that you actually develop negative pressure every time you sit and pull that skin across your tailbone. And this can create a vacuum effect, essentially pulling in hair and debris and other things like that. And of course, the area can also become secondarily uh, infected, which we oftentimes see in clinic and in the ED. So then which patients are at high risk and how do they present? Yeah, I think it's interesting that if you go back in history, this used to be described as a Jeep driver's disease. You know, it could be truck drivers, Jeep drivers, any one of these type of things. And typically it's males that are more common than females. The, the kind of the interesting thing about it is that a lot of my patients, they'll grow out of it. It's peak occurrences in those teenage years, about 16 to 20. There's no question it can go up to, you know, your early 40s. But even for patients that have pretty severe disease, there's something that happens as you get older that you just kind of grow out of it. There's no question there's risk factors. So those patients who are particularly hirsute or have some obesity or have that deep cleft. And what's important right here is to kind of think about some of the risk factors as we get into the treatments a little bit later and how those treatments really go into these risk factors and trying to absolve those risk factors. The interesting thing is that almost all these patients will have these characteristic midline pits right in that gluteal cleft. They can be inflamed, fluctuant. They can you know, have an associated abscess. And they're a little bit like an iceberg phenomenon where you may be just seeing that tip of the iceberg and they can tunnel and root and go in all different ways. And that comes into important as we deal with the differential diagnosis. Speaking of the differential, you already mentioned abscesses. What else do you need to differentiate between for these patients? Yeah, you're right. Uh, the abscesses are the most common, certainly perianal abscesses and or fistulae associated with that. And hydratinitis are really the two biggest things that... Uh, uh, you may become confused with just based on how things look, but also just based on how close they are to the uh, perianal region. Then since we figured out how to diagnose these, let's move on to treatment. I'll start it off with some basics. First, we need to know a few things. Whether the patient is symptomatic, because asymptomatic patients should be left alone. Second of all, the next question to figure out is whether it is a recurrent disease. Third, whether or not we need to determine if the patient is infected, as infected patients should undergo incision and drainage, ideally with the curatage of the abscess cavity, as this has been shown to result in superior healing and lower recurrence. Like any abscess, packing a wound is recommended if at all possible. Definitive surgery should not be performed until all infection has been resolved. Yeah. And, and what about antibiotics? Are, you, are we going to treat every patient with antibiotics too? Antibiotics are actually rarely indicated, except for really bad infections that have cellulitis or systemic illnesses. Antibiotics could also be thought for patients who are immunosuppressed as well. 
Right, right. And we're also going to recommend that the patients focus on keeping this area uh, clean and hair-free, although the exact benefit of hair removal is not entirely clear. And aggressive shaving, for instance, can sometimes make things worse. In fact, the ASCAR guidelines gives a weak recommendation based on low quality of evidence when it comes to hair removal. And in regards to hair care, patients, they can shave the area every one to two weeks. They can pluck the hairs. They can use depilatory creams or even laser. Scott, I'm curious, did you guys talk about this? Uh, you did talk, but I'm sure in detail with, when you're coming up with the ASCARS guidelines. And then also, what do you do for your patients when it comes to hygiene and hair care? Yeah. So if you take a step up from this, I'll, I'll get in there for a second. It, you know, I think that personally, if you're going to treat polynatal disease, you should be familiar with three to four methods of surgical management that can address the entire spectrum of the disease. And then kind of you'll be able to work and develop an expertise in each of them. Regarding your question about dealing with the hairs, I think that in selected cases of minor disease, non-operative treatment that includes shaving and hygiene measures can actually be quite successful. If you go back to the history of this, a lot of this comes from the military. Actually, the largest series out there comes from Triple Army Medical Center out in Hawaii. And that, when you grade the literature out there, there's just not a whole lot of literature, which is why it's a weak recommendation. The other problem is, is that in many of these patients, their body habitus or the degree of hirsutism or just the way that they respond really is all over the map. It's just why you see just such varying uh, successful presentations. So older retrospective studies have shown that patients have better outcomes if shaving is used and surgeries are avoided. But it should be noted that most of this data was older and it was compiled during an era where wide excision with healing by secondary attention was much more common. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Another point about this is the question that comes up is what about laser hair removal? So laser hair removal has been shown to reduce recurrence in palinatal disease in cohort studies, but there's no really good, strong randomized controlled trials to support this. The other aspect about this is you got to know that for whatever reason, you know, certain people, they can shave and other people don't have the ability to have somebody there to be able to shave that for them. And so it might be just that you live alone, you can't really reach back there or you can't really get the hairs out of there. So that's why I think some of the success rates are a little bit all over. But it probably has been shown to not do any harm and it is worth a trial. All right. Since we started talking about the treatments, let's get down to it. Because as you mentioned, Dr. Steele, this can get very confusing given the myriad of treatments available. Right now, let's just stick with the non-operative management. What non-operative treatment strategies should be considered? Yeah, so so there are a handful. And we should note that there's fairly minimal data uh, for all these. These are small studies, a lot of retrospective studies as well. Let's start with one, crystallized phenol. They're crystals that are applied directly into cysts and tracts, first described as a treatment for polynomial disease in the 1960s. And phenol is a caustic sclerosing agent that results in increased granulation tissue and scarring when you put it directly into these tracts and cysts. And it's pretty well tolerated. Um, there's limited studies, like I said, very limited studies, but shows pretty good results with resolution of disease. And uh, between two-thirds and even up to 100% of patients, if you believe that, and elimination of recurrence in, in a high percentage of those patients and well uh, as well. And uh, in general, treatment uh, consists of curataging that cyst and tract and applying one to three mLs of crystallized phenol into those areas, uh, sometimes over multiple treatments. And this is typically done in the office. And uh, Askers gives a strong recommendation, again, based on moderate quality evidence when it comes to phenol, so something to consider. So the other two things we want to cover a little bit is fibrin, glue, and pit picking. 
So just in general, patients with relatively minor disease who wish to avoid an excisional procedure, they can be candidates for, Patrick just mentioned, phenol, or in this case, fibrin glue. It's important to understand that either one of these procedures begins with removal of the hair and the debris from the tracts or pits. So then you administer the local anesthetic, you inject the tracts, in this case with fibrin glue, and it's thought to be able to close the tracts down. So this is a monotherapy to fill the tracts. Sometimes fibrin glue has been used all over the map, but I will tell you in general, it's a we rated a grade 2B. It, it's, it's not extremely useful. Now, pit picking or what we call the simple bascom procedure, and again, this is mild chronic disease. Typically, the primary complaint is related to midline pits or maybe a little bit of some cases where small off the midline wound. This is where this procedure kind of finds its wheelhouse right there. It, it's simple. It, it does result in wounds. There's no question. A lot of times these wounds heal in one to three weeks. And essentially, it's mostly for superficial disease. And, and the goal here is to be able to excise those superficial tracts without closing the wound. You're going to debride and clear all those six. And what you do is you cure it along those tunnels. Not a lot of great data, I got to say, out there. There is some people that will describe and, you know, using a 3-0 vicral suture to close this area, even though they often do open up again. Uh, and in general, I would say that the wounds themselves is the benefit of this procedure are not as big with some of the other procedures. Right. And then we should probably mention lasers and even radiofrequency ablation, too. I've not seen this this done, but uh, there's described uh, radial type probes uh, with ra uh, laser energy or radio frequency uh, ablation type energy that you can insert into the cysts or tracks and, and deliver that energy to ablate that tissue. Certainly, we mentioned before, you can also use lasers uh, for depilatory type hair just removal treatment. That was an awesome review of the non-surgical treatments. But how widely are they actually being used? Dr. Steele, did you and the Askers group discuss the practical application and the use of these treatments? And do you use any techniques that we just described? Yeah, I think that what's important here, Shanaz, is the fact that you got to take a look at the patient in front of you. And I would say that in general, somebody who's just has maybe some sinuses and they really, you're looking at them as a couple of pits and maybe they swell every so often and they drain a little bit and they're very hirsute, or they got a deep cleft, I mean, that might be somebody that you go ahead and say, let's just try, you know, something that's very, pretty straightforward, go, you know, do what's easiest up front um, first. Uh, by the time they get to most surgeons, though, a lot of people have already tried this, and that's the problem, that they've tried the, you know, they tried to pluck out all the hair and the debris in there, they've been shaving, they've gotten laser hair, and they're still having problems, or in many cases, it's recurrent disease. So to answer your questions, I think absolutely most people do try it. B, that the data is all over the map and they tend not to be that great. And C, by the time they get to us, again, most of the time they've tried a lot of this and they will be looking for a surgical procedure. Yeah, and I kind of want to add on that we were talking about non-surgical type options. We did put that pit picking procedure in there and that can be looked at as a surgery and kind of on the spectrum of surgery on one end as opposed to, you know, full-fledged operations where we're resecting that tissue, maybe even creating flaps sometimes. And as uh, Dr. Steele mentioned, the pit picking type procedures, the office-based procedures like that, um, almost looked at as kind of like a step-up approach um, um, in terms of treating polynatal disease, but also for fairly minimal disease or low burden of disease uh, as well, which is, again, really important to remember. Well, that's a perfect transition because we we're going to talk about surgical options next. So surgical options are the mainstay of treatment for polynatal disease, and there are a lot of options like out there, as you both have referred to. 
Exposure to different types of surgical approaches is variable and may depend on what part of the world you live in, the institutional preferences, and what type of surgeon you are, specifically plastic versus general surgery, and probably the most influential, what your mentors taught you. We started with the pit picking. Why don't we step up from there? Yeah, that's right. There are definitely a ton of procedures out there. And in general, the goal is to resect all the involved tissue while preserving as much of the normal tissue as possible. And one of the biggest forks in the road is deciding whether or not you're going to close the defect. And so to some, this may sound kind of crazy because why would you not close an incision like this? These are relatively, again, you know, simple excisional procedures. Why not just put it back together? Well, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, and and as Dr. Steele mentioned, it can be really challenging uh, to get these wounds to heal. Even if you've done an excellent job, uh, technically, if you've created flaps, some of these wounds will fall apart. And it can be really, really frustrating for you. It can be really, really frustrating, obviously, even more so for the patient. And so it's important to recognize that this skin is simply under tons of tension. It's just a bad area to try to cut something out and sew it back together again. Not only is it on tension and physically pulling, you also have poor blood flow to the area. The natal cleft also happens to be uh, warm. Uh, It's moist. It's bacterial laden. That's why we talk about potentially not closing the wound. And one of the major studies a lot of people cite is a Cochrane review from, I think it's about five or six years ago that looked at closure versus non-primary closure to treat pilonidal excisions. And the recurrence rates were lower in the wounds that were left open. So closure was 8.7% recurrent versus 5.3% in wounds that were left open. And there are a number of other studies that actually support this finding as well. And so that's kind of the classic teachings. You leave it open. You get, uh, yes, you have the, the pain and all the agony that comes with packing a wound and the slow healing, but you have a decreased chance of recurrence. But this was kind of, uh, there was a wrench that was thrown in all this in a 2018 meta-analysis. It was a, a decent sized one as well that collected data from studies with a minimum of five years of follow-up only. So they had longer follow-up in this trial compared to the Cochrane study. And this study found higher rates of recurrence overall, kind of not surprising, right? You follow the patients longer, and that was up to 18%. And the highest rates were actually patients who were left open as opposed to closed primarily. And higher rates were certainly found in patients who were closed on midline. So in the end, we, we really aren't quite sure there's conflicting data on, on primary closure versus dealing with secondary intention. And at least from my standpoint, that uh, means to me that I want to give patients who are eligible for getting primary closure at least a shot at doing so. And if the wound falls apart, then you can move forward with secondary intention. Primary closure is also associated with faster wound healing, right? And a sooner return to work then for these patients. One key point is that there is universal agreement that off-midline closures are associated with lower complication rates, healing time, and recurrence rates compared to midline closure. So what kind of options are out there for off-line closures? Yeah, Scott's going to be the expert of this, and he's going to take the bulk of it. But before he does, I want to make an important point that we mentioned at the, at the beginning of the show is that there are a bunch of options out there. You can flap something, you can rotate it. There's all types of surgeries that are named after the surgeons who invented or standardized these procedures. And so with so many options out there, it can make you feel like you're missing something. I know I felt like that before. I said, man, I've actually never been exposed to this type of procedure. I'm not you know, facile with that. I'm really must be missing something. But you also, uh, while you want to be fast out with a wide range of procedures to be able to treat all your pyonidal patients that come in, you also want to ask yourself, why are there so many options out there? Why are there no gold standards out there? And this is something that we see in the world of surgery, uh, certainly across all specialties. Maybe you're sewing the uh, pancreaticojejunostomy or you're fixing a hernia. And you know, one mentor has got a, a very specific way of doing it. Another one's got a very specific and they're both right. And uh, so there are multiple ways to skin a cat. And again, this usually means that there are probably multiple uh, correct ways to do it as long as those procedures are done well. 
but we will talk about some of the pros and cons of the different surgical approaches for different types of disease. And I think a great example of this was when Scott posted a case, which he does every Friday uh, to his Twitter account, you know, about colorectal surgery type patients. And this one was a polynatal case. And it was fascinating to see there was tons of activity about it. People were all wound up about it. And they shared a ton of different treatment options, which they all felt were their gold standard, their personal gold standard. And so again, lots of different ways to approach this, lots of different ways to skin this cat. I'll hand it off to you, Scott, for your thoughts on this. Yes. So before I go into each one of those, I'm going to give you eight principles, just very basic principles when dealing with treatment for anybody with palinatal disease. The first one is control sepsis. Just like any other part, don't try to get fancy. If there's an abscess there, any acute abscesses, make sure you drain any and all acute abscesses and avoid any attempt to do definitive surgical management in the setting of an infection. Number two, do the least amount of work possible. You know, the anatomy, the severity of the disease should drive the treatment selection, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Number three, Patrick mentioned this before, avoid too much excision. You know, that old adage of excising a disease all the way down to that post-sacral fascia is going to leave in some patients with an extremely large and complex wound. You want to avoid this as much as possible. Number four, unroof all disease, debris granulation tissue, and remove hair. This goes part and parcel with avoiding too much excision. You know, removal or unroofing the skin and overlying active disease may be essential, but don't do it too deep or any further that you have to. Number five. Use off the midline excision and closure. It is essential to attempt to try to, where possible, close that wound off the midline. Wounds on the midline or the gluteal cleft just don't seem to heal as much as those located elsewhere. And again, that goes back to tension. Number six, if the wound is closed, tension must be minimized. It's inherently difficult to have wounds located in the region of the gluteal cleft to begin with. So every effort is made to be able to get that wound off of the midline and try to decrease the, the tension. Number seven goes into the principle of essentially one of the, of the basket repairs, but that's to change the anatomy and flatten that natal cleft. There's a lot of things that people talk about the, the natal cleft, if, especially if it's a deep natal cleft and the thought that that's an anaerobic environment that you need to be able to deal with. But if possible, try to flatten that natal cleft. And then finally, number eight that I'll go into a little bit later is never underestimate the impact of postoperative care. And I will go into that a little bit. So those eight principles, regardless of what you do or how you deal with this, are critically important. So I'm going to touch base very quickly on a couple of the different procedures that we talk about. Again, there's a lot of them out there. So the first one is the rhomboid flap. Now, the rhomboid and the keratacus flap, when you think about these particular two, you just got to think about how you're closing that midline cleft. So you've excised that. On the keratacus flap, what you're doing is it's more of an elliptical incision that's carried down, and then you move that off the midline closure, and it winds up in kind of a semicircular type closure. The rhombite flap itself, again, is, is just like how it sounds. You know, you got to be able to draw this out. You can go to the internet and find many different drawings of how you do it, but essentially you're forming a rhomboid, and then you're moving in healthy native tissue from one of the buttocks into there. When you talk about the recurrence rate with each of those, You'll see them a little bit all over the map. Zero percent recurrence rate. I love whenever I see a study of zero percent. As Patrick said, when you follow these patients out far enough, uh, they're probably going to be able to find somebody that did have recurrence with it. And then with the keratacus flap, again, most of the time they talk about a recurrence rate of less than five percent. 
when you talk about a Bascom procedure, there's a bunch of different Bascoms. We talked about the pit picking procedure before. The cleft lift procedure, this is one of those uh, principles that I talked about before. This is essentially you're trying to alter the anatomy of the natal cleft. You're excising the disease. You're removing that anaerobic environment. So when you see videos of this, and we do have a video of ourselves, a full disclaimer, full disclosure, Eric Johnson did a video of this that's available on the internet. And you're trying to get that, that safety zone of tissue right there, which you're trying to be able to excise and then flatten out that native cleft. But again, like a lot of these procedures, you're going to move it off the midline. Yeah, primary healing rates, you know, anywhere between 80 and 96%. Recurrence rate is, again, zero upwards of 17, 20%. You can find some, again, some videos of that on the internet. The VY advancement and the Z-plasty, these are other techniques. And again, all you're trying to do is you're trying to take the disease out and take healthy tissue into that natal cleft and then close it tension free off the midline. Uh, the VY advancement healing rates, again, is greater than 90%. I uh, got low recurrence rates and then Z-plasty is again the standard Z-plasty type and you can see these available on the internet. I think if you take all of these, what you're going to see is that the data would suggest that in general, your healing rates are going to be anywhere 80 to 90% with recurrence rates less than 15% if you look at them. Some report less, some report more, but if you look at them all, they all follow the exact same principles. Excise the disease, rotate in healthy tissue, and get that tension-free closure off the midline. And just depending on how you get that in there and the shape of what you do it in will dictate what the procedure itself is called. Now that we've gone through all the surgical options, could you talk about the preferences that you two have when approaching patients surgically? Yeah, sure. I can, I can start. I'm a, I'm a simple general surgeon, a trauma surgeon. And so I want to keep a simple minimalist pit picking type approach for limited disease, uh, you know, in, in the clinic type procedures. Whereas if it's a larger excision, um, I've preferred to use the cleft lift, the Bascom's cleft lift type procedure, which uh, Scott mentioned as a, a good option, a good simple option for closing off midline and trying to obliterate that, that natal cleft, uh, as well. And so those are my kind of main workhorses. Scott, what do you say? This is one disease process which you have to tailor the operation towards the disease in front of you. And so uh, to answer your question, I don't have one particular one. If they have just a, a limited disease and it's really bothering them and they kind of flare up, I will still excise them and marsupialize the tract because, you know, a lot of times that just that simple closure where they'll have the week, uh, a couple of weeks open, they'll pack a little bit and it won't be bad. And I don't take them through a big flap. If I'm if I'm forced to have recurrent disease or they got a lot of disease that's in there, I like you. I do like the cleft lift procedure. The key to the cleft lift is to make sure that you find that zone that you want to be able to take out and then undermine and get a nice bulk healthy tissue and get that closure off the midline. We should also mention something about drains. The bottom line is that patients undergoing primary wound closure, a drain may be used on a case-by-case basis at the surgeon's discretion. Drains have been shown to reduce the incidence of wound complications, such as fluid collections, but they do not impact wound infection rates or recurrence rates. That is right. So it's really a case-by-case basis, surgeon-by-surgeon basis. Uh, Certainly, drains can be considered for larger uh, excisions and larger defects may be more appropriate. Uh, So uh, we've got a common but difficult problem on our hands with pile nodule disease, and uh, whenever that happens, I think you really want to be sure that your patients are well-informed, right? So we talked about the surgical approaches, but really, really important is how you talk to your patients about this. Because at face value, this is something that's kind of simple, right? It's just uh, an annoying problem. It's a common problem. 
And the uh, for some of these treatments, at least, they're relatively simple and compared to some of the other stuff we do uh, on a day-to-day basis as surgeons, general surgeons, and specialists as well. And so I think this is a problem that you want to under-promise and over-deliver. You talked about healing rates of 80 to 90%. You want to get patients ready for the possibility that wound does not heal. Scott, I guess I'd be curious to hear from you. How do you, how do you counsel your patients? What do you tell them about this? Again, common but difficult problem. So how do you get them ready for healing? And, and also, how do you prepare them to commit to that all important post-operative process where what they do in the post-operative appearance is going to affect your occurrence rates and rates of successful primary healing. Yeah. So this is principle number eight of what I said before. Never, never underestimate the impact of post-operative care. I think like most things, post-operative care starts in the pre-operative setting and it really comes with managing expectations. So let's just give an example. You got a person that they're morbidly obese, they're sedentary, and they're a smoker. Is that the person you're going to want to do a flap on? Probably not, right? So we need to make sure that we prepare and pick the right surgery for what's the patient sitting in front of you. But the reality of the situation is to make these people understand that healing can take a really, really long time. And I will tell people that I'm going to do a flap on, listen, if this flap works, it's great. But if it doesn't work, you may wind up with a bigger wound than what you're starting with right now. And I think that's critically important because, you know, oftentimes I'll come to you as the expert and they're miserable and it's just, it's a tough wound to heal. And so post-operative management has a significant impact upon the ultimate outcome, especially in cases of off the midline closure. So there's no really true prescribed evidence-based recommendations to follow if you're looking them out there, but definitely limitation in physical activity, work restrictions, Limitations to a certain degree on weight bearing on the buttock, get them off the buttock will help to minimize that wound dehiscence. We're trying to decrease the stress that's on that wound. And I think what's critically important is that we have clear written instructions, whatever they may be, that you go with the patient ahead of time and afterwards. And especially if it's, you know, a lot of these people are kids, they're in their teens or in their early 20s, they'll come in with a family member. And it's the family member that you're like, hey, you got to watch them. And, you know, if it's a 16-year-old, you know, patient, they may want to get out and go play sports again or do something. You got to be able to make sure that they take care of that wound or the whole entire thing is going to fall apart. How long do you ask that they be pretty serious about offloading that wound in terms of sitting, especially for long periods of time? Yeah, it's going to be six, eight weeks. I mean, there's no question. These flaps are difficult. Remember, you're taking a poor blood supply area. In an anaerobic environment, if even if you're making it aerobic by decreasing the natal cleft and you're taking fatty tissue with even poor blood supply and you're rotating it into an era of high stress and high movement. Just think about the principles of that. It's amazing that we can get some of the healing rates that we can. So anything that we can do to help that wound heal is critically important. Stop smoking, limit your activity, limit the stress on the wound. But as surgeons, we've got to get that wound off the midline and make it tension free. And again, I just can't emphasize this point enough that uh, and for our residents uh, to really consider this again looked at as a relatively simple procedure but oftentimes during training you don't get to see these patients post-operatively or follow them post-operatively and man does it really stink when that wound falls apart and the patient's got to pack and and it really again has a huge impact on their life so very important to get them ready to get them prepped and to get them on board with your plan to ensure that you optimize that the chances of healing all right that was a great discussion on a common but complicated problem Here's a few high-yield take-home points. The specific mechanism for the development of palonidal disease is still not known. The easiest diagnosis to confuse with palonidal disease include perianal abscesses and or fistular hydroadenitis. Dedicated hair removal probably helps. Leave asymptomatic patients alone. Do drain infected cysts. Antibiotics are typically not required. 
don't perform definitive surgery until all infection has been resolved, as Dr. Steele has mentioned in one of his eight principles. Two of the more common non-operative treatments include pit picking and phenol. Historically, we've thought that healing by secondary intestine reduces recurrence rate, but this may not be true based on a single study in which patients had more than five years of follow-up. Offline midline closure is superior to midline closure. This includes better wound healing and decreased recurrence rates. And lastly, there are lots of surgical options out there for off midline closure, all of which are effective if done correctly. So from all of us to all of you, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.